This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. McCard carrying Basing at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. He stood next to Big Poppy be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. This is Kate Massey, host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132, every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. I'm Professor Adi Weiner of the Wharton School of Business. What we're going to do is I'm actually going to play two interviews that I was able to record back in March when I jetted back down to uh, Florida to make a couple of spring training excursions. So I was really lucky to be able to spend a day at the ballpark of the Palm Beaches where the Washington Nationals and the Houston Astros play. They actually have their their spring training facilities down there. And my host down in Palm Beach was Sam Mondry-Cohen. Sam was a Penn student and he was uh, one of uh, my students and he was in my class and we would have uh, regular meetings to discuss baseball. And right now he's recently been promoted. He is now the assistant general manager of the Washington Nationals, where he's in charge of all the analytics operation, and I would guess a whole bunch more. And Sam was uh, kind enough to host me at the park, tour me around the stadium, and we sat in the outfield during the spring training game and talked baseball for about 20 minutes. So it's time to run a couple interviews. Um, the first interview is with Sam Mondry Cohen. Enjoy. So here we are at the ballpark of the Palm Beaches out in center field and you have background noises of the game going on behind us or actually in front of us outfield play just beautifully made and i'm here with the new assistant gm of the washington nationals sam mondry cohen who's been on our show a couple times before he's a graduate of penn and he's been with the nationals for a number of years in a number of positions and he's just recently been promoted to assistant gm sam great to meet with you out here in the outfield it's always a pleasure to be here, especially in this setting, either whether it's here or Huntsman Hall. Uh, happy to do it. It's really wonderful. It's, uh, it is a little overcast day here in Florida. We were expecting Florida sun. But I want to get right to it. There's a lot of uh, news about Major League Baseball and some of the changes that are coming down the pike, some of them that are already in place or being attempted and studied in some of the minor league ballparks. But the 2020 is going to bring great changes to MLB. I think probably the most prominent one is the three batter minimum for pitchers, for relief pitchers. So you want to tell me what, immediately what your sort of thoughts are about that? Yeah, I mean, my first reaction was that I thought it was a um, wise or smart uh, alteration by you know Major League Baseball and the Players Association that it may really have an effect or some effect on pace of play, but it's not going to you know be unseemly to the game. I think uh, it's going to give a new rule for teams to, to strategize about, and it's something we're, we're continuing to think about. What are the implications on player valuation and on in-game strategy? Um, but it, it'll be a fun one to, to try to game. So a couple things are, are, are packed into this decision. One, of course, is game um, uh, pace of play. So not being able to bring in a reliever multiple times in an inning will not prevent the game from slowing down, particularly in the playoffs where you see that really almost abused. But I don't, I don't particularly think of it as that as the major point. And you mentioned something with strategy. So um, will this give the batters more of a, an advantage in, which, in a race that they seem to be falling behind in? Uh, 
Yeah, I think that it's definitely clear that this uh, benefits the hitters and not the pitchers. Um, and I think it's going to affect a kind of a, a certain class of hitter. It's going to be a advantage to the left-handed hitters, and I think it's going to be really a detriment to left-handed relievers, who are you know the class most often used only one batter at a time. And What's the uh, the acronym that's in the in the news these days? The, the loogie. The loogie. When it tells us what that is. Yeah. <laughs> Lefty one out only guy, essentially, right. and the the loogie is uh, will now be almost extinct, not quite extinct. So how can you use it now? Now that there's one small loophole in the rule, which is you have to a three batter minimum, unless one if you get injured, of course you you wouldn't have to stay on the mound. But the other is if the inning ends, so there'll be some interesting strategy in two out situations. Um, essentially, do you want to uh, you know if you imagine a left handed batter is up, followed by a series of right handed hitters. Um, you may play a risky move where you bring in your left-handed reliever, you know, believing him to get this this one critical out. But if he doesn't get the out and is now left in to face two right-handed hitters, you know, previously you would just remove him from the game and bring in a righty. But now you're going to be forced to keep him in. And uh, this will be seen as kind of a new high-risk, high-reward uh, maneuver that, that I think we'll see in baseball. And it's going to be something else for the managers to to have to strategize around. So actually, as a fan, I'm, I'm, I'm quite excited for this new rule change because it will bring some high variance and sort of risky play, which is always interesting from the point of view of watching games as a, for entertainment. On balance, pro or con? I would say I'm pro. I think, you know, it seems like baseball is looking for, for ways to get more action, you know, have fewer of these pitching changes, get the ball in play more often. And some of the suggestions I feel like or at least to me, especially the fan in me, has a negative reaction to the, There's some talk about moving the mound back. Would that be oh, considered? Oh, I, wow. So actually, let's, let's segue to that. Yeah. So the which, which league was it in the, in the independent league? The Atlantic league? league. The Atlantic League was purchased by MLB? What does that mean exactly? I'm not a, uh, I don't know what it means to be purchased by MLB, but, but at least now my sense is that MLB has kind of carte blanche to run the rules in the way that they, that they want. So they've talked about experimenting in a number of ways um, throughout the season or half of seasons even. I think that the... One of those is going to be moving the mound back two feet to 62 feet, six inches, so they can see what the impact is on. Um, I think what they're most concerned about is is, is action. Our, our hitters putting the ball in play more. Uh, right, they- so they're making some real hard rule changes that are in this particular league. And one of the one of the teams is actually in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and our group is, is uh, and my, my co-hosts and I are thinking of heading out to Lancaster to watch a game. But they're talking about some really big changes, like, as you mentioned, moving the mound back. What do you think? Yeah, I have a visceral negative reaction to that, just as you know, as a fan, not really speaking as uh, somebody who works for a team. But to me, the 60 feet 6 inches is one of those kind of sacred numbers in baseball. It goes back to 1900 or so, or maybe yeah. earlier. Uh, and to me, if they want to move the mound up or down, I wouldn't, you know, that I would understand. That's obviously happened before, famously after, you know, 1968 and Bob Gibson's tremendous season. Um, if they wanted to change the definition of the strike zone, you know, toward the same goal, that those would be things that, you know. Well, the strike has zone has expanded and contracted has, yeah, in, and over the years. from uh, pitch to pitch, quite honestly. But they're also doing a, um, the, the umpire or artificial intelligence adjusted or aided or augmented strike zone. That's what exactly do you think of right. that? I think that's the other big change that you're going to see in the Atlantic League. Yeah, I'll be interested to see how it, it uh, really plays out. I think that, you know, they're going to install a TrackMan radar in each of these ballparks. They're going to pay a lot of attention to calibration because I think... What do you mean by calibration? I mean, the accuracy of the readings. You know, mm-hmm. for a long time, I think people have talked about these robot umpires, but only until very recently has the technology um, been exact or precise enough to really even improve on, you know, a, a human umpire. I'm not sure if we're even there yet today, but um, I know we weren't there several years ago, and I think they're going to use the Atlantic League to find out if that's the case and see if there's kind of um, 
a, a common ground where there is, you know, as you said, it'll be aided, but not, you know, ultimately determined by um, these models. And so there'll be some human intervention. That could actually take away a little bit of the advanced uh, analysis that uh, divisions and teams like you, yours uses to scout umpires. Yeah, scout umpires or catchers, right? You know, if, the, if there's a more uniform strike zone, it seems that, uh, you know, some of these skills that we value in a catcher today, the ability to influence an umpire on a called pitch would change. And an another is um, certain pitch t certain pitchers may be more valuable. You know, right now uh, the strike zone on a breaking ball is, is smaller than it is for a fastball. And if, if they can make that more uniform and all of a sudden... Um, It'll expand the strike zone for certain types of certain pitchers. Certain types of pitches, which but will affect certain pitchers more than others. We're watching Patrick Corbin here pitch today. He throws about 40% breaking balls. He seems to be one that would benefit from... Uh, uh, strike zone that increases on uh, sliders, and but it's held constant on on other pitches. But it's interesting you you put you uh, bring up the point about catchers. There's been a renewed or or focus on pet catcher pitch framing, which obviously would go completely away. Just to to remind everyone of what that's about, it's when a catcher uses his position and body position to frame the pitch in a way that seduces, if you will, the umpire to do the catcher's bidding. And that has become a, a focus of many analysts. It's not clear to me that the teams have been that interested in it, and they've valued it at a, at a huge dollar value. Um, that would, of course, go away if there were radar or umpire, automatic umpire systems. What do you think about catcher framing? Is it as valuable, and is it as yeah, damaging I, to get rid of it? I, well, I don't know if it's damaging to get rid of it, but it certainly would change the valuations of current players. Um, you know, for us, we're also watching uh, Jan Gomes catch for the Nationals, and part of uh, you know, I'll say part of the acquisition for him was um, one of the reasons we valued him the way that we did was his ability um, to get called pitches strikes. I mean, there's a lot of other things we liked about what he does, uh, you know, as a catcher, game calling, other aspects of his defense. But uh, it's definitely true that part of it right. was his ability to uh, you know influence the umpire. And well, there's such a shortage of actual good hitting at the catching position the differentiation between the catchers really falls down to all these defensive measures. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And maybe you would see better offense um, from the catcher position if they didn't really uh, have to focus on framing. And you might be able to put some people back there that you, you wouldn't put there now because they're going to give away. Because they're so costly you know. behind the plate in that, in that sense. And maybe Mike Piazza will come back. <laughs> Mike Piazza. Was he very bad at that he in, was. in his yes, day? Yes. And how do you know that? Well, the, we have because less it's before the data, right? Yeah, so. we have um, more crude methods. We didn't, you know, we don't have necessarily the location of um, the ball uh, on every pitch, but we we do know kind of what pitcher strike rates were, you know, with him behind the the plate and with others. And so there's certainly, you know, we can't say it too confidently, but but. Uh, the data would suggest that that was not a skill he, he had. So, but it's not like it's unknown to coaches that there was such a thing as catcher pitch framing. It's been talked about for a long time. It's the only issue is that it's really measurable using today's tracking technology. So, how is it that someone like Mike, Mike Piazza never got good at it? Is it because it wasn't measurable, and then therefore no one could really put their their finger on how much it cost the team because he couldn't frame, or or is it uh, simply just he didn't care to do it and he wanted to become a, he wanted to spend all his resources on hitting yeah i think uh, i think the incentives weren't really uh in place for him to improve this you know he was being paid for his hitting i don't think that he was getting feedback from um coaches uh or you know people in the front office that this was something that he needed to improve on and and certainly you know the way he was paid as a free agent or maybe through salary arbitration you're not seeing this as a stat that that is driving Mm -hmm. um, pay and, and that's one of the things that that has changed now. Maybe not quite to the extent that that some people believe, but you're, you're certainly seeing that play a role in in um, 
the way these players are being compensated, and that's one of the biggest drivers of them trying to improve their performance is either to, to be paid or because they're they're being shown the data and, and they want to win and one or the other. And I, don't, I just don't think that that was there for Piazza. I don't think anyone was telling him that he was costing the team, right. and I don't think anyone was telling him that he was costing himself money. And, and that those have both changed. I think players... Players are conscious of this. So I actually wanted to ask you a little bit about this uh, sort of general, the intangibles that we used to talk about in baseball that are now quite tangible. So you talk about catcher pitch framing, but the other thing is is defense. And there isn't yet, a, from the fans' perspective, a standardized way of measuring or talking about defense. Um, but that stuff is coming. I know that you know my own work, I produced some early metrics that valued in terms of runs, um, but it's not really quite there yet. Um, of the variety of different ways to measure field, fielding, which one do you particularly uh, enjoy or, or think about? Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of new avenues open by um, StatCast data, this idea Watching an exciting play here. The yeah, we that- just saw we just saw one of the the Nationals have a terrific young center fielder um, who we just watched uh, in our eyes uh, make a terrific throw. Um, he earlier in the game he made an amazing amazing catch, um, uh, and that to me really <laughs> highlights the importance of defense right there. Yeah, and I, you know t- to go to that, I think one of the exciting things about these defensive metrics now are to get more granular, talk about certain baseball skills and and, and both where how do players excel in this area and and how valuable is that, and so you know. We may now be able to talk about what's the importance of a player's, you know, speed versus um, their ability to get a very good read. And then now that we have the position at where they started and where the where they ended um, and their velocity. Kind and you of, also have the information about the ball. And the ball, exactly, so. that we can kind of try to disentangle and measure these various components. So whether that's um, their speed, whether that's the route, whether that was the positioning, you know, um, which is kind of a very important factor to, to separate because we don't give a lot of... Uh, responsibility to the player for where he started, but certainly what happens from where he starts to where he ends is is kind of uh, exclusively uh, in his domain. So just to put this in perspective, all this data is accumulated into databases, and you need to build models, which are often used uh, using machine learning techniques and statistical methods that have been around that are somewhat new, some of them old. And these are the source of all this data science, data analytics. This is the resurgence or, 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 or surgence of all these jobs for our young graduates, and, and you've been hiring them, and I know lots and lots of uh, teams have been picking up um, many of these young analysts, and uh, and so your your group has has quite a bunch, and I know lots of other teams have have many. Some some are fairly differential. I don't know if you can talk about this, but uh, what is the variance you see in the teams? Um, I know that in football, for example, there's enormous variance from essentially nothing to enormous staffs. Um, is it is it uh, it can't possibly be that variational in baseball? No, I think you know every. All 30 major league clubs now have uh, you know, a research and development department or an analytics department within their baseball front office. And that's certainly something um, that's relatively new. When I started you know, as an intern for the Nationals in 2009, I would estimate that about a third of the teams had that sort of department. Mm-hmm. I was lucky that the Nationals you know, did not at that, that time. So there was some opportunity for me when I was hired in 2010 full-time. I was the first analyst that the Nationals have. Now every single major league team has a number of analysts you asked about the variation. I would say, you know, on the small side, a department may have four or five people. And, uh, you know, on the high end, there are some teams uh, that, that probably have about 20. Some yeah. teams like to... Probably the richer teams. Probably, if I had to guess, you don't have to confirm. I would guess it would probably be the, the coastal teams That's and the, the case, metropolitan but, areas. But there's some teams, <laughs> you know, that uh, don't have big resources but that spend here, like the, the Tampa Bay Rays. The, the cost of an analyst, I don't think I'm giving away any secrets, is significantly less than the cost of a, of a, a major, of league, a major baseball league baseball player. player. And yeah. so, 
you can make some kind of small concessions to your major league roster to to outfit yourself with the largest research and development team. So I, th- I will just cut in here, but talk about the Tampa Bay. Um, they've done a couple things that are f- highly unusual. They were the first team to fully bring in the opener, which, as you know, I've been arguing about for a long time. Yep. But they also did another one. <laughs> they brought into the dugout an analyst. Do so you want to you reflect on that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I think that it's a credit to the organization and honestly a real credit to you know the, the individual Jonathan Ehrlichman not somebody you know I know personally but certainly by reputation um, so yeah you, you had asked about the variance among organizations on the size of the staff I think there's even more variance on the level of belief and buy-in and commitment to using um, kind of data-driven analysis or beliefs in their uh, you know process all throughout the organization and you know, the areas where these insights add value are oftentimes where you go against conventional wisdom or go against the orthodoxy. And those have um, inevitably will have some resistance from people that have been working in this space for a long time um, or for whatever reason are not very you know open to data-based evidence. And so what, what I see from the Rays is a tremendous amount of buy-in from top to bottom that, that they really are believers in the value that, that they can have improved decision-making, that, that everyone in the organization has uh, things to learn and that um, data can enlighten and bring and, and kind of teach everybody various things about baseball. And, and so by them bringing Jonathan Ehrlichman into the dugout, I think just says, like, look, that w- we believe in evidence-based reason all the way to our in-game decision-making. And, and, and a lot of areas... Um, in some respects, that, that can be kind of one of the last areas to, you know, include or integrate some of these processes. And it's clear that that's not the case for the Rays. So I, I, I think it's great. And um, I'll be curious to see how it spreads to the how it spreads. And it, but it's definitely also a, a real testament to, to him as an individual, because to get that sort of famously trust, never confidence. played anything beyond T-ball. That yeah. was the headline. Um, and that, of course, is true for a lot of the analysts. Um, one final topic uh, just very much touches on this issue is how much is the younger generation of players different from the older generation in the sense of their openness to bringing in data into their decision-making, into their training, into their just sort of daily professional lives as athletes? Yeah, I think they're um, much more open, and they're really, in many ways, the the young players coming up through high school, college, and that are in professional baseball, often the minor leagues, are the ones driving some of the most exciting changes in baseball on on the player development and player performance side and and why is this well one they're being exposed to these technologies at a young age whether that's in a private coach or in college or in high school that that some of these um institutions have been more willing to innovate um, or been earlier adopters than some of the you know professional teams that um are already doing things at at what they believe to be a very high level and i think what is a high level and so these players are coming up having you know, exposure to, you know, wearable technologies or bat sensors or track man radar. Or also um, some of these very expensive sort of driveline baseball type programs. That yeah, they exactly. And, and they may train at a place like that in the off season. They may get some of that exposure uh, in college. And so when they come into professional baseball, they're um, believers and they're, they know how to integrate this sort of technology into their own um, program and, and they're asking for it and they're um, driving some of that that change the other thing is you know i think today's generation is uh just more open to technology they're on their phones um you know they don't know how their phone works but they are happy they know to, how to use it they if know you how to use it. it and so i think you see that yeah. same analogy over to, to baseball that they may not need a the deepest understanding of a of a 
you know, the gyroscope and a bat sensor, but th th they know to trust the data that comes out of it, and uh, they have no problem questioning authority. And, um, you know, I think that's certainly another trait that's common to the young player that, that actually dovetails with their increased use of data. So, yeah, it's an ex ex exciting time, and I think uh, a lot of the credit goes to, to players, particularly, as you mentioned, the, the younger generation. That's terrific. Well, thank you, Sam. I want to once again congratulate you on your uh, promotion to assistant general manager of the Washington Nationals. Finishing up a, uh, your, your sojourn down in Florida. Yes. I know you're probably going back to uh, Washington, D.C. relatively soon. The season starts in not even a week or not so. Even, yeah. Not even a week. So I'm really delighted you can take some time out of your schedule to... Uh, participate in this uh, interview and it's been terrific sitting out here in in center field um and uh probably move back down to the seats and uh thank you very much sam it was really a pleasure i appreciate it as you know i you know would not be here without uh your mentorship or, or pen and it certainly set me on my way so yeah thank appreciate you it. i'm again. always happy to return great so that concludes my interview with sam mondry cohen who is the assistant general manager of the Washington Nationals. Oh, we're grateful to Sam for allowing me to interview him actually at the ballpark at the Nationals. Uh, actually, they're called the, the ballpark of the Palm Beaches where the Washington Nationals play in the spring. They share their ballpark with the Houston Astros. Continuing in our baseball theme, I have a second interview recorded in March in the dugout of the New York Yankees baseball stadium in Tampa, the George Steinbrenner Stadium. The interview is with Michael Fishman. Michael is the vice president and assistant general manager of the New York Yankees. I am here at George Steinbrenner Stadium, I think it's called, in the dugout in a very rainy Florida morning waiting for a spring training game to start this afternoon with the Tampa Bay Rays. And I'm really delighted to be in the dugout talking to Michael Fishman. Michael, it's great that you can join me here. It was wonderful to come down. Yeah, thanks for coming out. Yeah. Um, Michael is uh, the assistant general manager of the New York Yankees. And before that, he was the director of analytics. And I think the analytics group is still uh, under your kind of purview of the team. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, yeah, I was the uh, director of quantitative analysis for uh, uh, for about a decade. I uh, started in 2005 as our first analyst and then kind of built that department. Uh, and uh, and, as, and s since then, I've uh, been the assistant general manager for the, uh, the last number of years. Okay, well, I want to find out a little bit what you do in that role, but let's go back in history. I just found out while we were sitting here that uh, Michael and I are uh, both Yale grads. Um, I'm a little older than Michael, and we also are math, pure math majors at Yale, which is uh, just a plug for all our listeners. Major in math, and the world is yours. Um, when we were at Yale, there was no statistics department that was giving undergraduate degrees. Um, I actually did not major in statistics. You didn't major in statistics. Or, and, and now there is. I don't know if you're aware about that, Michael. Now there's a whole data science initiative at, at Yale that is pretty impressive and is and somewhat the envy of our department at uh, our, our school, University of Pennsylvania. Um, so after that, what did you do? Uh, yeah, after uh, Yale, I did uh, work as an actuarial work for an insurance company in New York for a few years, um, and uh, and after after that, uh, kind of went after the baseball career. So tell me, how, I mean, you're, you, what you're you're describing two thousand and five is that's when you started. Yeah, two thousand five, I started the Yankees. So yes. that's actually more or less when I started getting involved in baseball analytics. A little history: um, two thousand five was when I got uh, promoted to, uh, to with tenure. That allows the professor to do whatever they want. Back in the day, doing sort of baseball research was considered um, something that you sort of kept on the side, or you didn't really tell anybody about it. Didn't really have street cred in the academic <laughs> community. I think that 
that's somewhat different now. Um, so back then I got a big data set from ESPN and this was, there wasn't really anybody doing any data analysis in, in, in the academic world or certainly not even the teams. So when you got to the Yankees, were they, how dig, how into analytics were they? Were you the first one? Yeah, I was the first analyst who was really getting the program off the ground. So and I had a sim- similar similar story similar here story. in that in that uh, and really there was very even trying to get into the game. I was doing some research on on my own, and there wasn't very much being done in baseball at that time. Some some online at at that point. Um, but when I kind of started with the Yankees, it was really trying to build uh, build things up from the ground floor. So if you don't mind me asking, one of the plugs that I, that I teach my students, and particularly my undergraduates and even my high school students who come to teach to study at one, uh, Wharton Moneyball Academy, what can they do before you're working for a team to get noticed? So you must have done something. What was your first um, data analytical project when maybe while you were working somewhere else? Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, if, I, when I was at Yale, I actually did a uh, independent study with a statistics uh, professor oh, who was that? on on uh, 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 Professor Hartman, uh, John, uh, John Hartman. Oh, I don't know. I don't know Hartman. Okay, and uh, yeah, just did, did a project uh, kind of evaluating the uh, the, uh, the value of of, uh, of players uh, and and look looking at uh, how how much uh, players players are worth and kind of looking at the components and. Uh, and kind of developing our own formula for for the uh, the value of, of players, um, and then kind of going beyond that, I did did a few other uh, independent studies on my own after college. Uh, that things that I sent out to uh, to teams and uh, generated interest. Y- yeah, and trying to sh- really showcase what my abilities were, what th- kinds of things I could do for teams, mm-hmm. and uh, and kind of sent them out to all all thirty teams trying to there you go. The games. That's advice to everyone. Yeah. Um, if you want to try to get a job, send it out to 30 teams. There's, of course, a much bigger network today. Were you a Yankee fan growing up? Or is that something that was uh, on your radar? Um, I was I was a Mets fan. Oh, and, boy. Uh, <laughs> oh, boy. He was a Mets fan. Okay, and, that's great yeah, for all but, your Mets fans. Um, you probably but, had to toss that allegiance by now. You've been the Oh, yeah. So, yeah as soon as it started with the Yankees, but really growing up, I was I was a baseball fan and a mm-hmm. fan of statistics in the game, studied the game. Right. And, uh, baseball and, encyclopedia yeah. on your desk. I had that as a kid growing up. I did have a baseball encyclopedia. <laughs> So you were a Mets fan, but now you've been to the Yankees since 2005, yeah. pretty continuously. So tell me a little bit about the evolution of the New York Yankees and analytics. Um, back in 2005, you're the only one. 2019, where are you now? Yeah, it was a uh, it was a one man department back then, and uh, yes, yeah, since then we've uh, the quantitative analysis department grew, um, kind of continually adding. Uh, a person or two per per year, and uh, and eventually splitting up into two departments: the uh, quantitative analysis department and our baseball systems department, creating uh, kind of our, our baseball uh, computer systems and databases. And yeah, between the two departments, it's about uh, twenty five people now. Twenty five uh, sp- people split split halfway. In, half I would each. probably guess. I don't know for sure because the teams are somewhat tight lipped about this information. But I would guess that the Yankees are probably the most um, numerous in terms of that in terms of the number of uh, personnel devoted to athletics to to analytics probably maybe seconded by maybe the Red Sox or the Dodgers or other wealthy teams would you agree um, it would definitely uh, one of the most uh, the, the Rays here in Tampa are also uh, Rays, are up yeah. there with a similar number right um, that's that's great they also have that many interesting um, it's, it's it's fabulous to hear how much how much analytics analytics have really you know embedded themselves in in sports all around of course baseball is the sort of the granddaddy of them all there's the best data um, the best uh, usages of it the most most obvious um, implications which have really changed the game you can see the way the game has changed and actually I want to talk about some of those things um, how analytics has changed the way um, New York Yankees play I mean one of the things that that I, I would ask you is it seems that in the offseason there were hard to kind of get contracts for these big free agents 
Um, the Yankees really weren't in the market too much. They weren't in the market for Bryce Harper or Machado. At least, maybe at least they were. I just didn't know about it. But what do you think about the role of analytics has played in sort of leveling out the variance? And so a player has a worth, and everybody knows it, and that's just it. And that maybe maybe that's an explanation for why things are just um, taking a long time because the players have to find their value, and they don't know it. Their agents don't know it, yeah. but the teams do. Do you do you think that's a reasonable um, assertion? Yeah, I mean, there. I think there's a there's more uh, agreement on value of players now than when I started in the game. But I think teams still look at things differently. Every, everybody has their own proprietary models and and, uh, and evaluations, their own scouting reports on on how they how they see players. And uh, so it, it's market forces are also some of the things that drive 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 these drive prices and and uh, and. And, and how much interest there are, there are in, in each player, um, but there there also is that so, a little more similarity now. Similarity, we all have the same data, right? So, yeah, some, same data, but we do different things with the of data. Of course. So let me ask you a little bit about data before I talk to you, to you about some other uh, issues that are on my mind. So when when I started, when you started in 2004, 2005, we all more or less had the same data. Um, you could purchase some data from Baseball Info Solutions or Stats Inc. back then, and most of that was video-generated uh, data that individuals would pl- press dots on the on a screen and and kind of help you locate where the balls landed. And of course, there was a retro sheet which had a play-by-play analysis. And and we were I felt very egalitarian. One of the things that I think as a professor now I feel very removed from the day-to-day. Well, the the best data because you guys have data that I don't have. So can you and and you're using it. So can you tell us about the data that you have that the public doesn't have and we all know about statcast but that's not public that's still very much proprietary yeah so the, yeah there's the of course the statcast data is tracking everything the track uh, man yeah. yeah everything on the field in the track man um and and then having a lot of that data in the minor leagues as well with uh, with track man data across uh, all our minor league affiliates so there's the there's a there's a there's a wealth of data we have at at the minor league level that 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 uh, the public doesn't have access to. Obviously, we have our own scouting reports that are that are form form of data, and then some of the stuff we're collecting on the technology side now, um, and uh, so it's it's a it's a continuously uh, growing data set, and uh, and beyond just having all this data, just the with the amount of data now, it's really the the manpower to. You have the manpower to, to study all the different things you, you can so do. So, what 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 things would you do that with the data that say would be that I couldn't do well because I don't have good access? Um, in, I mean, it's it's just doing it's doing each thing better. Um, so, so if I try to evaluate fielding metrics, you yeah. guys can do it better because you have more accurate. Yeah, data. yeah there's, there's there's more there's more there's more data available, and uh, and then just, and then and then the additional manpower to to study the data. Um, so. It's uh, I mean, with, on the Statcast side. We're in, in measuring fielding. We're getting uh, again the, the location of every every fielder at every moment during the during the play, and you can track uh, his route and his speed to to, to the ball, and uh, and get a more precise measurement of how many how many balls players should cast catch, and and really try and get a deeper understanding of the player's true fielding ability. And also you you have to use that data to position your fielders on the field. So the the whole shift and all the very precise metrics um, that comes yeah. from your your office I would guess. Yeah yeah that's uh, in along with uh, working with our in, infield coach so the, we provided the the data in our in our optimal positions um, really based on uh, Optimizing uh, the locations of the nine fielders, where to place them to get the most outs. Do the players uh, have buy-in? You have buy-in from the actual fielders? Do they? 
take their their lessons and they move to their spots, or do they think they or do they respond saying, ah, you know, I know where to be. Yeah, we we have buy-in. There are always questions. The questions are a good thing. We want players to asking uh, asking why, and and maybe there's there are things that they can add add to the equation. And we we have gotten feedback from players that have uh, led to us kind of adjusting our positioning models. Um, and uh, so it's a it's a it's a new evolving process, but it's uh, I think we have buy-in now, and it's especially now it's become widespread across the game. Okay, so let me ask you a couple of things that have come down the pike recently. There's the rule changes that have been proposed for 2020. Some of them are roster sizes are sort of less interesting, but I think the most um, salient and central rule change is the three out inning, three out um, batter minimum for a, a pitcher. What do you think about that, and what is that going to do to the way you know the team gets run here, particularly the Yankees, which have a overabundance of terrific relievers? Yeah, I think in our case, with our uh, abundance of re- relievers, as you said, um, we, we have relievers who are good against righties and lefties, so in terms of matching up our pitching, our current pitching staff at least, it, it's not uh, that big effect. I think we're we're last year, second to last in the number of one one batter appearances in in uh, last year because we, we don't have those one batter specialists. But it does affect moving forward how you construct a roster. And there are times in the past we have had the lefty specialist and the righty specialist and and uh, tried to match up uh, and uh, Clay Rapata and Cody Epley in the past. And uh, yeah, and but you have that, to remember that, you're talking to a lifelong Yankee fan. I've seen many yeah. in, uh, a pitcher pulled and replaced and. And the Yankees, I think, maybe it's, I don't know if they're the longest, but they might be the longest average game in the major leagues. Is that about right, or is it something that you thought about? We, we, do, we do have long games here. You sure and, do. Yeah. And I think the, the intent of this rule is to, to speed up some of these games. And uh, so it, it certainly has, has an effect on how, how you build your roster, and then additionally, not just in your pitching staff, and the opposing team's pitching staff, knowing that they're not going to do it, can affect the way you put your lineup together. So the uh, the Atlantic League, which was uh, kind of now controlled by the major leagues, they're instituting a couple of major changes for this year, including a robo-umpire at home plate. What do you think that's going to do? Yeah, it, it's, uh, it will be interesting, interesting to see how that plays out. Um, I mean, for starters, they have to make sure that they're getting really good da- and accurate well, data. Well, that's, of course, that's, right. that's a start <laughs> off with. <laughs> yeah, right. But let's assume that it's it's as accurate as the umpire. One thing that I can tell you from my own research, the umpire is about as divergent as from each other as 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 from what you'd get from a machine. So this is always the the complication, right? So the umpire behind the plate and the and the ra- and the robo umpire might disagree, but two umpires seeing the same thing also disagree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, this will be a good testing ground for the league and the Atlantic League so they can test out how some technologies work and how it how it plays out on the field. So let's say they implement something like this. Um, what do you think that does to baseball? Yeah, it, I mean, ultimately the game's still going to be played the same same way. Um, uh, there must be some changes, no? Yeah, I mean, there there could be uh, in some some changes in terms of uh, if there are pitchers who are certain pitchers who are particularly good at getting uh, get, getting or deceiving the umpire, getting some extra extra, extra strikes. strikes. Um, that that pitcher might uh, might lose some value if he if if it's now com- computer based. How about catchers? It's the same thing on the catching side. If they're you know, the uh, the catchers who are good at getting the extra strikes, um, you they, believe in it? You believe in framing? Sure, they, you do. They're, okay. they're, they're, How valuable? Are some, Can you give me a uh, plus minus and runs? What do you it, think it, is uh, the legitimate skill as opposed to year-to-year variance, which can be enormous based on yeah. the number of opportunities? Yeah, really. it's yeah. There's the the sample size for catchers is is really enormous. The number of pitches they 
the catcher catches over the course of the year. Um, that, Most that of those are, are, are uh, out of the zone or in the zone. Yeah. Uh, yeah. At the edges, it's not nearly as many as you think. So yeah. what do you think about the value? What, do you, what is a, a good framing catcher in your mind bring yeah it i mean it the there's 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 definite value and there's and there's a skill there it's n- maybe not not as much as it used to be when the skill wasn't as uh focused on by across the league so there was in the past uh um there was a much bigger difference between the best catcher in the league and the worst catcher and now it's right. a now it's a s- smaller difference all right yankee question how's gary sanchez behind the plate uh he's he, he's know. awesome yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is that what you're gonna tell me How's his yeah, framing? Is yeah. it something he worked yeah, on? It's, yeah, it's something he's continued to work on. We've, it's been a point of emphasis throughout um, the minors for him and, in, and now in the majors for him, and it's something he, he rates uh, above average at. He does. Okay, that's really good. All right, the other, a couple other new rules um, I know are on, on the works, um, particularly in the Atlantic League. They're, they're talking about moving the mound back. That must strike you with great um, uh, you know, animosity. It must, must, but how do you feel about that? Not going to happen in the majors. Yeah, I think that's just another another thing that you can see how it plays out in the Atlantic League. Yeah, but you've got to admit yeah. that's yeah, kind of I, crazy. I, yeah, I'm sure there are some some pitchers that are going to have questions about it, in the, and uh, we'll, we'll see what happens there. All right. So the, one of the last um, topics I want to just uh, chat with you about is the prevalence of kind of all this sort of high high tech uh, systems to track information that's used by the individual players on their individual performance. So either that's sort of fitness data at the level of, um, of workouts, heart rate data, sleep data that the players are tracking individually, and also the, the information that's gathered from the movement of the ball. I know that there are these sort of driveline baseball and there's a Rapsodo system and these high-tech cameras that the pitchers are using to construct their own pitches. And this is something that requires buy-in from the players. Are you using this here at, 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 the, at the training facility here in Tampa? And is this something the Yankees are, are exploring? Or, or how, how late to this game are they? Or are they early to the game? Yeah, um, we're, yeah, we are, we are, we are using that technology, and it's, uh, it's, in it, all of it's new is new or newish to to everybody because because yeah. uh, in the past all this technology didn't didn't exist, and now it's something that we really can uh, can apply on on the field and in and in practice, and and uh, and it's uh, something that we're we're working on and continue to to get better at there's i think players have more of an interest now and uh, buy and seeing just hearing about what other players are doing and seeing improvements other other players are, are making and uh wondering if they can do the same so it's yeah i think some players uh explore explore some technologies on their own during, during in the off season when they're uh when they're uh out on uh trying to uh to work on their game and uh and for us, it's our it's our jobs to provide all the resources to them um, to, to to make to make them better. How interested yeah. are the pitching staff, Jordan, in general? Scale of one to ten, it ranges from ten to zero. Yeah, it ranges from ten to zero. Everyone's individual, and some some have their have their ways and feel comfortable where they're at. And some are are uh, are looking for uh, kind of how to how to tweak a certain pitch or what how they can make themselves better. So it's uh, it's a it's a wide wide range based on the uh, based on the individual players well the Yankees are looking to do sensationally this year all the pregame all the preseason forecasts are for quite a large number of wins I have to say I, I was asked an over under on the Yankees wins and I had to forecast around 95 um, the over under was 95.5 and that's purely based on <laughs> analytics my heart is saying 104 <laughs> 105 so I have no idea whether whether you're uh, whether you'll obtain that we, we wish you very best um, for the New York Yankees and uh, thank you very much for joining me here in the uh, in the dugout here at the uh, George Steinbrenner Field of uh, at 
down here in Tampa, Tampa Bay, Florida. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So that concludes our interview with Assistant General Manager of the New York Yankees and Vice President Michael Fishman. Michael was the first analytics representative of the New York Yankees, and now they are one of the biggest, if not the biggest, analytics staff among all the baseball teams. So we're really grateful to the Yankees and to Michael Fishman for allowing us to conduct that interview. Coming up after the break, longtime pitching coach and friend of the show, Rick Peterson. And then we will welcome Rufus Peabody back to the show a longtime collaborator with our colleague and co-host, Cade Massey, and we'll be talking about evaluating golf performance and betting on the sport itself. Also have the opportunity to discuss Tiger Woods' amazing performance at the Masters this weekend. I'm Professor Adi Weiner of the Wharton School of Business, and we'll see you after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. To Wharton Moneyball, I'm Professor Adi Weiner, Department of Statistics, here at the Wharton School of Business. Back for our final hour this Wednesday morning, live here in the studios. I hope you enjoyed those last two interviews that I was able to record on location in spring training in Florida. This last half hour, we had a chance to listen to Michael Fishman of the New York Yankees. Um, biggest analytics staff, or maybe second biggest analytics staff in the major leagues. They sure can use it about now, although they had a good game last night with Paxton showing some strikeout power and the Yankees winning 8 nothing over the Red Sox. Take that Shane. Shane is, of course, not here. He's away, as Cade likes to say, doing Shane things. And Cade is away doing Cade things. And Eric is away doing Eric things. And I'm here in the studios by myself. But we will be joined in about uh, 10 minutes or so by longtime friend of the show, Rick Peterson. going to call in. We're going to talk baseball. And at the bottom of the hour, at about 9.30, Rufus Peabody. Super excited to hear from Rufus, one of the world's greatest golf bettors, collaborator with Kate Massey on the Massey Peabody football rankings for both professional and college football but more known to me as Yale grad. Um, so we'll be delighted to hear from Cade at 9.30. So let's just go through a couple of amazing events that took place this past week since we last were on the show. Shockingly unexciting week for professional sports, beginning, of course, with Tiger Woods' victory at the Masters. Um, nobody thought this would happen, and so it's our first of the super unlikely events that took place, that transpired this past week. Um, maybe the Cognoscenti knew better. We'll have a chance to talk to Rufus, and maybe we'll get some insights of course, Tiger's uh, arguably the greatest golfer ever to play. Uh, he's, uh, you know, his early career was nothing short of, you know, stratospheric um, and, uh, you know, won 15 majors and many, many PGA tournament champions, championships, and of course is exceeded only by Jack Nicholas. And then he had some rough patches, some bad injuries, and essentially five years of nothing, and he's trying to come back now. So no one thought he would win a, a, ma a major ever again, and he has now done so. So that's unlikely event number one. 
Unlikely event number two, I'll, I'll bring it in, into my own life. I'm sitting there watching TV at night, decide to watch the Sixers playoff game against the Brooklyn Nets, expecting, um, you know, the, the, uh, the Sixers are heavily favored. They've got an all-star uh, cast, and they're going against a, a upstart Brooklyn team, yet they lost the first game of the playoffs um, shockingly at home, and I turned it on, and the score was, uh, I think it was 66-65 at halftime, and Charles Barkley, the enemy of analytics, was ranting in a narrative about the preposterous play of the Sixers and how the Nets have their number, and they outbox them, and the big men choking them in the center, and their inability to shoot, Ben Simmons, blah, blah, blah. And I turn on the on the game expecting to see a, a um, you know, an epic matchup, only to watch the Sixers score a record tying 51 points in a quarter, making the Nets, the Brooklyn Nets, look like a band of children playing against grown-ups. And I was uh, in awe of this outcome. And uh, just to put in a little context, 51 points in a quarter. There are 15 series in a basketball playoffs, eight in the first round, four to one, 15. There are four quarters in every game. Most series average maybe five and a half, six games. You're looking at around 350 quarters, two teams each quarter. That's about 700 opportunities to score 50 points in each quarter each year. Multiply that by what? 25, 30 years of full playoffs. Then you got a whole bunch more years of smaller playoff rounds. We're looking at maybe 10,000 opportunities to break 51, and here we had it. So I would put that at least in the one in a thousand mark. The Tiger Woods uh, um, probability of winning the Masters, I don't know what, maybe Rufus will tell me this. Maybe it's one in a hundred, or I mean, winning a a major one in in his the rest of his career. According to um, 538, they gave that about a 2% probability. So um, it depends on the models, of course, you use. But let's just say that Tiger's victory is rare. I would say the 51 points that the Sixers scored is even rarer. And now let's move on. What else did we, uh, what else do we have that's uh, shockingly rare? The Tampa Bay Lightning with its 62 wins in the regular season and its quest to win the Stanley Cup fizzled out. Bah, nothing in straight games. Four up four down against whom was it a team from from columbus the blue jackets i mean i I hate to say like you know who are these who is this team i mean shane if shane were here i mean i'm not a hockey guy everybody knows that i'm the first one to tell you what is this sport but if you ask me uh and shane were sitting here you'd say you know what it's hockey hockey is just crazy random i mean one thing that's interesting is to look at by sport i mean is this the biggest upset set in hockey how does it compare to other great upsets in the playoffs and particularly the first round of the playoffs i'm not really sure um but certainly this was a great team against a weak team you don't see that typically in 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 basketball typically right i don't think ever in basketball um it's currently possible in football. There's only one game where a great team loses to a wild card. Um, in baseball, it certainly happens. But, I mean, usually the it, when you have epic sort of face-offs in the first round, usually the, the, the better team, very, very frequently the better team wins. Uh, so that's, the, that's that one. Um, and so that's really a, an unlikely event. So what do we got here? We got uh, the Sixers victory, and then we have the Tiger Woods victory. Then we also have the um, the the Tampa Bay Lightning loss. And then finally, finally, we have one of the greatest comebacks in all of basketball playoff history. The Warriors lost. They lost to the Los Angeles Clippers, even being up 31 points with eight minutes to go in the third quarter. That is 
um, based on probability, win probability models, which based are based on the probability of, well, they calculate the probability of winning using the score differential, the time remaining, and I think the prior odds of the team. Those are the three things that go into it. So you, you basically have the fact that the Warriors are much better, or soon presumably, and, and are much, much better than the Clippers. So that sets off a, a probability differential. And then you have the fact that there are 31 points up with eight minutes to go in the third quarter, a full fourth quarter remaining and the probability the odds are were about 0.1% uh, so that's one in a thousand so all of these events taken all together we have four at least you know one in a hundred to one in a thousand maybe even one in ten thousand events that happen in one week and that seems rather odd and an incredible week for kind of crazy events um, and certainly fascinating from a probability perspective of course let's take the other side it's always good to take the other side I love love fighting back um, well first of all Tiger Tiger's victory well you know Tiger's Tiger um, I think we may have misjudged him and that's why he's uh, I mean he's he was out because of injury injuries heal he's back he's back to you know full form and he's more like to me maybe he's more like Michael Jordan who took a time off to play baseball and took a year to kind of get his bearings in 1995 and back to 96 he's back to winning championships so maybe Tiger is about my, is like Michael Jordan and his victory was just what champions do that's the first one the Sixers victory over over you know six Sixers 51 points. Well, you know, basketball players score points. There's a lot of games, a lot of opportunities. Someone's going to be at the top. Why not um, the Sixers? So I don't necessarily uh, make that much of it. Their record in a quarter is 58 points, I believe. Um, that happened in October 20th, 1972 by the Buffalo Braves against the Celtics. You know, it happens. The basketball players take shots. They make shots. You know, something can happen. So that's that one. The Tampa Bay Lightning, of course, losing... It's hockey. Come on. Hockey Hockey has lots of randomness, and, you know, that puck moves around fast. I mean, I don't want to sound flippant here, but, but these are great teams playing at high level, and, and in a best-of-seven series, it you know, rare events happen. I think the odds were, prior odds were 40 to 1. Those are, of course, the Vegas odds. They're sent to be much higher than the actual probability. We'll have a chance to talk to Rufus about that, but typically Vegas odds on are much higher because the Vegas, the book, wants to make money. So they want to pay you out at probabilities that are much higher than the actual probabilities so that you, their expected value uh, incorporates that differential that they call that the VIG, and the VIG goes in favor of the house. So, so maybe the Tampa Bay Lightning winning is not so unlikely. And, uh, and then the comeback, the 31 points, well, you know, injury, the Cousins, Marcus, uh, who is out? Uh, DeMarcus Cousins, right? He's the big center for for the Warriors. Uh, Durant fouled out. Um, Curry had a bad game starting in the third quarter. You know, just there, things happen. So maybe uh, um, great teams need, need they have a lot of depth, but you know things can happen. So there's my counter argument to all four. But now, of course, you know, leave me by myself to play with my toys. It's time for baseball and a call to the bullpen. Here comes the skipper on his way to the mound. That's going to be all for his starter this afternoon. Einstein said it best. It's great to have an open mind, but you don't want it so open that your brains fall out. Your mind is your master, and your body is your servant. When you can get your mind to train your body at that level, now you're mastering your mind to go with it. At the old one count, Chipper Jones hit 192. If you let Chipper hit the first pitch against you, cut your arm off and eat it. In God we trust, all others must have data. Warden Moneyball's Call to the Bullpen with Rick Peterson. So joining us now on the telephone is Rick Peterson, former Major League pitching coach for the Mets, the A's, the Brewers, the Orioles. He was with the A's during the great Moneyball years. He's now a sought-after motivational speaker and is an author of Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most. Rick, welcome back to the show. 
Bobby, how are you? I'm great. I'm excited about baseball. Um, happy to be here at the studio, although I'm alone today, so we, no one to interrupt us, Rick. Good to, good to hear your voice. How you been? You, you're calling from New Jersey? Yeah, down at the Jersey Shore, absolutely. Jersey yep. Shore. I'm trying to say it like a Jerseyite. As you know, I'm from New Jersey. Yeah, um, and uh, so it's always great to, now that the beach weather is coming around. We have a lot of baseball. Lots of stuff going on. So uh, I, I'm going to ask you just straight out, what has hit you in this baseball season and what fascinates you most about what's happened so far? Well, I think just a continuation from the trends for over the last, you know, over the last several years. I mean, over the last, I think, four consecutive years, strikeouts have been up for an entire season, over a thousand strikeouts every single year. Uh, there's more. There's a thousand more strikeouts every season, every every single year over the last like four or five years, and I think what's amazing is the fact that you know, strikeouts are at an all time high. They are. And what and, else is up? Well, and walks. Exactly. I'm glad you picked that one. So walks is up, and and home runs are up. Home runs are at, at I think an all time record. So we got home right. runs at an all time record. We get strikeouts at an all time record, and we have walks. It's up. Now I'm going to put walks. And walks. Right, now what is it? Tell me exactly why you think this is the hardest question for me, and this is why you, as a baseball guy, can really answer this. What's the causal arrow? If you had to say what is the reason for, let's just pick say. Um, I mean, because obviously the batters have a role and the pitchers have a role, but which is more contributory, the pitchers or the batters for all these these events? I, I really think it. I really think it's the batters, you know, more than anything else. And I think it's starting to. I, I think it's starting to come back to to the to a middle ground, you know, because you're starting to see so so many more guys hit a ground ball through the opposite side of the shift. I mean, guys didn't even try to do that before. It's been a major focus on, on several teams, you know, for during spring training, and, and especially the Mets. You know, you know, being in New York, you hear you hear a lot more details about what goes on with the New York teams, and and you see more guys trying to hit the ball through the shift. You know, so it's starting to hit a middle ground. But I think because of the, you know, the value of the home runs, and you look at, and you look at. Like the runs scored and how it's contributed, and and it's it's really the result of home runs. It's not a result of guys going from first to third or man on second base and nobody out, and you move a runner over to third base and you and you drive him in without a base hit, you know. And and so you just don't see that type type of baseball anymore. So let me just and, summarize. Um, mm-hmm. So you're you're so the batters are definitely. Top and down, top, top from top of the lineup to bottom of the lineup, all trying to hit home runs. That's what it, that's my appear. That's what appears to me. Um, would it, you? It is. Although it's starting, to, you're starting to get a, a, another shift of guys hitting the ball the other way. I mean, it, you see a lot more base hits the other way right now. Just like you know, just medium ground balls, mm-hmm. like left hand hitters hitting to hitting right, like right to the where the shortstop would be. So, what accounts for the strikeout increase? If it's uh, on the on the batter side, what are the batters doing that are causing them to strike out so much? Well, I, and I think it, I think it's also a combination of, of the use of the bullpenning. You know, the, the fact that batters don't face one bat, one pitcher for like three at bats, and then maybe you face, you know, your last two at bats. Maybe you face two different pitchers if you get five at bats in the course of that game. You know, oftentimes a batter may face, you know, if he gets five at bats, he may face three, sometimes even four pitchers. You know, so you're getting a different pitcher and the specialization of all that. You know, I think is 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 huge without question, and and I also think the fact that, you know, when you look at contracts, what's being valued is home runs, mm-hmm. no question, and and I think it's you know, and and I think you're going to start to see 
a shift towards the middle ground, and I think you're starting to see that now slowly, but it's, this is not going to happen. It's, it's a three- to five-year window, in my opinion. So I, I was doing an analysis with my class yesterday uh, looking at walks, and walks seem to be the surprisingly um, underrated component for contributing to home runs. It seems that that walks goes up hand-in-hand hand with increases in home runs more strongly than anything else. And and home runs are are up this year to all-time records, and walks are up uh, uh, proportionally much bigger this year. And yep. So my question is, when and you see this a lot, is it the pitchers? I mean, when I was a kid and played and pitched, and you're, you're obviously a pitching coach, the pitcher, my pitching coaches as a kid would, you know, throw strikes, throw strikes. Walks were always the responsibility of the, of the pitcher. But at the major league level, it seems to me that it's maybe potentially more the responsibility of the batters because they're waiting for their pitches so they can hit them, hit them for home runs. Uh, what do you, what's your take on this? Well, I agree with it. But when you look at this, when you look at how to counteract, how a pitcher counteracts a batter who has big time power, who's who's really focused on the launch angle. And when you look at the launch angles and you look at the exit speeds, I mean, it, it's just it's just right there. It slaps you right in the face. That if you get the right long angle, right long uh, launch angle, and and you get the exit speed at over 100 miles an hour, you know, the, the summation of those two, the ball's going to travel far enough to go over the fence. And then even and, and on a side note, you take a look at right now, the Giants are talking about. Moving in their moving in their fences, you know. So when you look at over time, you know ballparks get smaller. And <laughs> right. So and, tell me. So, so so Rick, as a pitching coach, if if I were a pitcher and you're my coach, and I'm dealing with batters who are more thoughtful of a launch angle and home runs, how do I face them differently than I might have faced them, you know, in years ago when they weren't so concentrating on launch angle and, and home runs? Because just going back five, six, seven years ago. The, the the art of pitching was pound the bottom of the strike zone, mm-hmm. and then and then once you get ahead, now you're going to expand either up in a strike zone or in or down off the plate or down below the strike zone. Now what you're seeing is, and you look at like Houston has been, you know, the model for these pitchers with Verlander and, and Garrett Cole, you know, leaving Pittsburgh and, and Detroit and going there and having like big time big time success a big spike in, in their performance because now they're now they're elevating fastballs Garrett Cole was a sinker ball pitcher he pounded the bottom of the strike zone in Pittsburgh and now because of launch angles hitters are a little bit better low ball hitters and you're seeing high fastballs thrown and you're seeing a lot of breaking balls thrown below the strike zone so that's, are these... how you, that's how you attack the launch angle okay so these are them just see if I can summarize so and the consequence of that because high strikes you, you don't want to throw them in the strike zone you want to throw them above the strike zone uh, above the strike zone and those really are balls you're... and so as exactly. a result uh, and to yeah. avoid the home run you got to throw them high strikes high and they're balls and the and therefore you have more walks exactly right and so basically you're attacking you're attacking a hitter by throwing balls uh-huh. So if a hitter, so if a hitter doesn't swing, and you look at Tanaka as a prime example, mm-hmm. when, when Tanaka when Tanaka pitches well, just watch all the pitches that the batter swings out of the strike zone. Exactly. When when, when Tanaka doesn't pitch well, they don't swing at those pitches, and then when he has to throw a strike, Tanaka can't beat you consistently in the strike zone. He doesn't have the, he doesn't have good enough stuff to beat you in the strike zone. So, so you, when when you take a look, at, let me just finish this point yeah, no quickly. Problem. So the high fastball, for example. Like there were several hitters going back years ago, like this, like Jorge Posada was a good example. 
Jorge Posada could not hit a fastball if it got about six inches above his belt. <laughs> that 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 was a high fastball to, to Jorge Posada. If you wanted to throw a high fastball to Albert Pujols when he was in his prime, you better throw it about neck high. So so how high is high? And I think one of the one of the issues the re, the reason you see so many home runs is that pitchers are trying to throw high fastballs that are not high enough for that particular hitter. Right? They may be they may be like like six inches above the strike zone, six inches above the waist, to like like to Posada, which is just slightly a ball. But but to certain hitters, that that ball gets crushed. Right. And and and, and you and you then when you watch like for example like if you watch thirty for thirty, which is the the spring training interviews of all the different teams, and they take guys in the batting cage, and they say, all right, show us what you do to get ready for a game. Inevitably, every one of these guys sets the tee about six inches above the belt. That's one That's one of the tee work that they practice. For the high There's, fastball. The high fastball. Nobody, nobody, nobody set the tee back then at that, that high. So let me, just, let me just get this clear. Six inches above the belt, is that an official rule book strike, or is that a ball? It's a ball. That's a ball. It's a ball. And, and has it always been a ball? I mean, my recollection back in the day, back in the seventies, was that was a strike. Is that a shift in the strike zone or not? It, well, the strike the strike zone kept shrinking, and then if you recall, about three four years ago, when strikeouts started to spike, they started saying, "All right, listen, we're going to raise the bottom of the strike zone. It's not. It's no longer going to be below the kneecap." So they're going to raise the bottom, and how about the top? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So, so a couple of things that are really interesting. So, um, umpires. There was a recent uh, sort of a study put done on by a couple of uh, statistician types in, from Boston that argued that the older umpires are less reliable than the younger umpires based on an assessment of the percentage of time they call the rule book strike based on the pitch FX data. And interestingly, uh, MLB came out and said, "Garbage! You are just do not have this right." Um, what do you think about that? Are younger are younger umpires just you know obviously they're younger they pay attention better they have better eyes I mean <laughs> what do you think where do you, where do you where do you come down on this? Well, I believe that the, the younger umpires are, are the same thing is going to happen with younger hitters. They're going to be trained differently, and the same yeah. thing is going to happen with younger golfers. You'll never see it. You, you won't see anybody on the PGA Tour try to adapt what what Jason or, or uh, DeChambeau is doing. No, nobody can. Nobody can. Nobody's going to have all the club links the same length that current players on the tour. My guess, in, the, in within five to ten years, you're going to start to see a big transition because play, younger players are going to start to adapt with what DeChambeau is doing because it's it's it, there's a science to it. You know, it's it's not just by feel. So and can we just say so? Getting back to umpires, your your point is that the older umpires are much more traditional. They have a set strike yep. zone. It might not correspond so cl- classically to. It might not respond correspond exactly to what now is the official strike zone. The younger umpires are much more adaptable. They change, and therefore they correspond more correctly. Even though they're they're probably not better, they're just different. Exactly, because it's only been it's been less than twenty years since umpires have actually been have accountability for the strike zone. Mm-hmm. You know, so back in the day, you know, umpires would say, "Hey, listen, this is my strike zone," and we would always be like, "It's not your strike zone. <laughs> yeah. It's it's MLB strike zone." I don't know if you know that. There's a rule book strike zone for it, but but when you would talk to the old the umpires when I first broke in with the Oakland A's, you know, they, that was that was before they started getting evaluated. It's like, look, if if you if the catcher sits up here and he puts his glove here, I'm not calling it a strike. It's like, well. 
if it's a strike, it's a strike. And then they went back to saying, okay, we're not going to – the strike will not be called in, in relationship to where a catcher sets up. So if a catcher sets up for a fastball inside for a strike and the pitcher happens to throw it down and away, he misses the target by 17 inches, but it's a strike, back in the day they would never call that. So you actually, you actually. So one of the things that if you, I've been watching a lot of baseball this season. There isn't, there is a constant discussion about catcher framing and the value of catcher pitch framing for the team yeah. and the and the sort of the consequent drop in production on the hitting side for catchers because teams are so uh, concentrating on predict on getting a catcher who has value in catcher framing. Did we? Did you know? Well, first of all, the first question is: Back in the Oakland A's day, was catcher framing something that that you thought that the coaches thought about? And my follow up would be: How valuable do you think, personal experience, catcher framing really is? So start with the back in the day. Back in the day, absolutely. You knew about. Always talked about. Oh, uh, it was always talked about. You know, the, the the quality of the target that a catcher would give up, or or to put his glove up to make sure that the that certain targets, like you go back to even Johnny Bench, if you want to go back that far, I mean, and 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 you go back to uh, is it Bob Boone, um, um, Boone's dad, right? Back in the day when he played, mm-hmm. I mean, they say when he would set up and give a target, it looked like you were throwing it into a sewer pipe. You know, the target looked so big, and and then even when I was in Milwaukee, you know, to get catchers to give a good low target, and and you wanted to see if you can actually give a target just below the strike zone. Not many catchers had the physical ability to do that. Jonathan LaCroix, who was one of the best framers for several years, he, he was a rookie when I was in Milwaukee in 2010, and we spent a lot of time with him you know, on, on, that, on that ability as well and the ability to catch a ball that appears to look like a strike. I mean, so you get guys, like when you look at watch Gary Sanchez, for example, I know he's been under, under the microscope with his catching ability, but you know he sets up and he's he's catching balls in the strike zone, and the way he has to catch them because he's not that skilled at catching and framing that he actually takes a ball out of the strike zone when he catches it. You know, so it it appears like he's just taking balls out of the strike zone. You know, so a lot of umpires they call pitches based on perception. Mm-hmm. You know, not 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 based on the, where the flight of the ball is, e- even though they're getting graded and evaluated based on that. You know, so so from a catcher that has a very quiet glove that can give a big target and, and really kind of like shift like very, very smoothly. I mean, Joe Girardi has done some great demos on in Studio 42 on MLB Network about showing the ability for, for a catcher to be able to do that. So I, I think it's absolutely huge. I mean, no matter no matter what you want to say, I mean, you're trying to be objective but but umpires, everything still is subjective. I mean, I mean, who, whose mind can be totally objective? So let me just you know, ju- so- just to finish this conversation on framing. Unfortunately, it seems to be highly correlated or negatively correlated with batting performance. Is that because the agility that one needs the uh, is sort of goes against the the same skills that you, the skills that you would need to be a good hitter? Exactly. Because uh, exactly right. I think Sam Mondrick-Cohen, when I interviewed him down at uh, down in, down in uh, Florida, he seemed to say that it has to do with focus. Uh, if a catcher really needs to work on his defense, you just lose the time to focus in the in the cage and and being a batter, and you just can't do both. It's almost like a pitcher can't be a hitter at the same time because you, you just don't have that many hours in the day. I mean, is that the uh, a plausible explanation? Exactly, and, and plus the fact that you know all the studying that the catcher has to do to understand right. all all the 
you know, how to, how to game plan each individual hitter and statistically who swings at the first pitch, who's going to take a pitch. Right. They have a lot of work I mean, to do intellectually. Listen, I got one last question for you, Rick, before we, before we say, we sign off and say goodbye. The Red Sox, are they as bad as they look? No. No. Oh, as, no. that's, I knew you were going to say that, no, but no, of course. They're not, they're not as bad as they look, but I think one, one stat, and this is right up your alley, one stat that's really interesting. Every single team that has made the playoffs, and I think it was the last four years, all every one of those teams were at the very top of run differential at the end of April. So you look you look at where the run differential is for for Boston and New York right now. Mm-hmm. The Yankees it, it's way down, and you look at Tampa. Tampa's Tampa's leading all of baseball in run differential. You know, so when you look at run differential, the predictability of who makes the playoffs at the end of April, it, there, there, it's been highly probable in the last four or five years that the team with the best run differential. So I think that's that's the one thing that 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 has been one of the I think constants. I'd be curious from your your background mm-hmm. and how you look at statistics, but run differential, it's really tough to beat it. So if you got a team, I remember like several years ago, Washington Nationals were in first place. It was when Davey. Uh, um, Oh gosh, I, I can't think of his name right now. Davy Johnson. Davy Johnson. Davy Johnson was managing the Nats, and they were like, I think, one game up at the All Star break. But their run, their run differential, the run differential was yeah. was was minus three. It's like this is like, it can't last. It can't last. So basically, it's the Pythagoras. And and I'm, I'm going to do some little research. Hopefully, we'll get you here later in the summer, and we'll be able to talk about it again. But listen, Rick, it's been great to have you back on our show. It's been too long. We're going to sign off and say goodbye. So thanks for joining us. So we are now going to have an opportunity to talk to Rufus Peabody. Rufus is well known to our show as a um, collaborator with our friend and co- colleague and co-host Cade Massey, who is away this morning. Um, Rufus and 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 Cade cr- created the Massey Peabody ranking system. Rufus is a professional sports better. He's the other half of Massey Peabody, and he's also the co-host of a awesome podcast, which I sometimes listen to. Um, bet the process. Bet the process. And he is formerly an ESPN predictive analytics expert um, and a graduate of Yale University. Rufus, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Thanks, Adi. It's good to be on. Yeah, it's great to have you. This is an exciting weekend for a guy who bets golf. Um, Probably, I mean, Cade would say probably better than anyone. You're a tremendous analytical approach to it. I was going to ask you, I mean, so let's just talk about Tiger, get that out of the way before we break down um, some of the other bets you might might make in golf. Before the tournament, what was the, you know, what were the, the Vegas odds? So he was offered anywhere from, I think, 14 to 17 to 1. But a lot of these New Jersey sports books actually have promotions on it. So uh, I, th- I believe it was DraftKings offered 100 to 1 for up to $10. Or I might be mistaking that for. Um, I think that's $10. right. So. But, but basically, or no, I think. It, um, I'm not sure if it was DraftKings or BetStars. One of them offered one promotion, one offered the other. The other did 10 to 1 after the third round. Um, for up to, I believe, a hundred dollars. Okay, so, so let me just say, so before, so the official Vegas odds were like fourteen or seventeen to one. Which, if you turn that into right. a probability, what would you give that? Well, just I mean, less than ten percent. Well, certainly much less one than ten percent, right? Yeah, yeah, one in fourteen, one in seventeen. But but there is a huge overround on these markets. So yeah, it, it's not a true market. Most of these, the implied probabilities, if you add up all the golfers, it adds up to like one hundred and forty-five percent generally. Right. So. So a lot of the times, like Tiger, 
Like Tiger's, I, I, I made Tiger 26 to 1 going into the tournament, but books aren't going to offer him anywhere near the true number just because they know so many people are going to bet on him. Okay, let me just unpack this for our listeners. So you use the word overround. So the overround has to do with the, 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 the fact that the probabilities don't sum to 1 because they want to offer you worse odds than they're, they're close, than are arguably close to what you could call the truth because they need to make money. So that's what, what, what overround is. And so when you see a 14 or 17 to 1, that's different than your what you assess to be the true probability, not true, but your estimate of a better probability of 25 to 1. And that creates the gap. Now, in a favorite situation like this, people overbet someone like Tiger. So that's why the they, and they just continually to do do this. So the books were where by the time, you know, the the tournament started at the end of the third round, very heavily in on one side. Yeah, I mean, they took a lot of tiger action and <laughs> the thing is they've taken a lot of tiger action over the last 10 years too. So so they've done very well from that. Unfortunately, it didn't work out for them um this particular week. So this he's is just, uh, everybody loves betting tiger. He he is He's the equivalent of the New England Patriots, the New York Yankees, and the Golden State Warriors, like, wrapped into one in terms of public interest. So what does this do to you? Um, and when you see this, how do you step in and, and leverage this to take an advantage? Well, I, I didn't with Tiger. I kind of stayed away. You did. I made him 26 to 1. You know, he was offered around 14 to 17 to 1. There wasn't any edge there. And there isn't really an opportunity to bet against him because it's a one-way market. There right. isn't sort of a take-back. I can't, I can't sell Tiger Woods. So I did see that you tweeted that he had a fairly high probability. If I'm getting this wrong, correct me, but I thought I saw you say 24% at the end of the third round. Uh, so, so someone had uh, actually that, – that, that was a joke tweet right uh, there. I also said Jason Day had a negative 1% probability. Okay. So, I stopped reading um, after some, the 24 uh, <laughs> I had him as I think an eight percent or so going after this going into the um, going into the third round. Okay, so that makes much better sense to. And listen, I'm no expert, but I saw that there was an amazing clump of players competing for the title really late into the into the final round. I, I mean, I've, I've Kate, and, Kate has been like laughing because I've never watched. This is the first golf tournament i've ever watched any part of on television ever so and i and i was riveted because it was ex really exciting golf i mean there were about 10 10 or 11 uh, competitors within three strokes of each other and within 45 minutes of ending it was certainly exciting obviously tiger was was the the showpiece of the event um so it was definitely but i didn't quite get how tw how it was 24 percent because so, i was just adding the number of players who seemed to be close roughly thinking they're about equal at you know at, at dumb attitude, but approximately right. Um, and so that 24 right. I mean, surprising. Yeah, I mean, coming down, coming down the stretch, you're right. I mean, it's, you know, in, in like a few whole stretch, it's, it's very hard to distinguish like skill from, from noise, right? Absolutely. So, I mean, the, the best, well, the Masters is kind of an exception, but I mean, you know, Tiger, the best golfers are just a few strokes better than the worst golfers in terms of expectation in the field. If you sort of take if you exclude the former Masters champions and the 65-year-olds, you know, playing in the field, but um, there isn't, you know, the gaps aren't that huge. But over over the course of many holes and rounds, it adds up. It does. I want to ask you a question on how you bet and how you model. So in in football, you you're sort of you know, Kate has talked about it and we've talked about it offline. 
about the ability to sort of model the teams based on sort of play success, offensive defense, and not the standard ways that people model based on wins, based on points, um, but looking, breaking down the actual action into its components. When you're dealing with golf, what are you looking at? So, so I'm looking at whole scores, just like most people are. But you're, the thing is, rather than what is hard is that there aren't really standard metrics in golf. You, you, I mean, people don't hear Rory McIlroy and think, oh, you know, yeah, his stroke average is 68.7. Um, you have to compare him to who he's playing against um, on that particular day, on that particular course. So, so sort of the adjustment for opponent is very, very important because all these courses are very different. Um, so that, that becomes sort of a statistical thing there. But aside from that, it's, it's looking at, at what is predictive in golf performance and what isn't. So the score, obviously, is your baseline metric. But certain guys, you know, one guy, two guys might have shot a 67 on the same day, the same course. But one guy did it holding a bunch of long putts um, and having some miraculous, like, Phil Mickelson-like, you know, shots around trees or something. Whereas the other guy might have just been solidly hit fairways and greens and, just not putted and not putted as well um, to get there. And so there's a difference in terms of how I would predict those guys going forward inter, um, based on, based on how they got to that score. So that makes any sense. One of the, one of the things that you're sort of what you, you guys taught me about sort of predicting future in football is to not get attracted to the, the big plays. Those don't predict and interceptions don't predict in golf. What you're almost arguing is the same thing. So maybe those long putts don't predict those kind of wrap around the trees, sort of miraculous shots. They don't predict. And, and there's a certain set of stuff that you look at, but you don't bet. You, I like this idea that the betting opportunity probably comes in these matchups because of base. So that's how you actually can, can make profit. So tell me what, a, what is a matchup bet? So a matchup is, is one golfer um, against another golfer head to head. So um, there's every week there's and for the Masters too there's a rotation. So so these books put out these different matchups. So for example, um, this week, or, sorry, this past week, um, Tiger Woods was matched up against um, you know Jason Day in one matchup. You know I could bet like Matt Kuchar against Xander Schauffele or you know. And so there's all these different matchups and there's a price set on um, on and it's who finishes higher in the tournament. And you can also bet matchups just for one round, but but the the tournament matchups I think are generally better because um, there is more randomness in one round. So you know if if, if one golfer is a little bit um, underpriced per round, it it becomes he becomes a lot more underpriced for four rounds. And you could find a consistent edge. I mean, you, I would guess the probabilities are fairly close to fifty percent with professional golfers. Well, you know, they vary. I mean, I unfortunately um, laid some fairly big prices against Francesco Molinari, who almost won the tournament. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that wasn't. And on my podcast, I talked about how he was the guy I was fading. He was the guy I was most against going into the Masters. And um, that, that, that didn't turn out as well. I, I laid minus 150 on, on some bets with him, meaning, like, for example, I, I bet Ricky Fowler laying minus 150, which implies that I thought that. Uh, his, his um, Fowler was more than sixty percent to beat Molinari. In fact, I I, I made um, Fowler sixty seven point two percent to beat Molinari. Um, he did not. Right. So, and that's a profitable edge. Sixty seven versus sixty is a fairly profitable. Yeah, that's a huge yeah. edge. Yeah, or a huge 
alleged edge, I guess. I say. <laughs> yeah. Estimated. At the right word is estimated edge. Well, listen, we have to, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to thank you. I mean, you guys, you and three, two or three other um, sports analysts that before the college football title game had very different probabilities than the than the books had a really big 67 to 52, I think was the gap, just to put it in context. You had 67 to 60 is a big edge. All the more so, 67 to about 52 is a big edge. That was a Clemson, Alabama. And I talked all my colleagues into putting big bets on that, and we have to thank you directly for that one. Um, you know, obviously... I mean, variance, right? Thank variance. Yeah, it is variance, but this is... It, I mean, just to put it in context, 67-60 is a, is a good edge. 67-55, 52, that's about as big as it gets for a professional better, no? Yeah, I mean, you're not seeing edges like that come along. And I'd say anytime you, you model something at 67% and the market says 52%, you should look pretty hard and make sure, I mean, because there's probably something you're missing. Well, yeah, but all the other, I mean, pro football focus, other people were, were putting, um, had similar lines. So one last question before we let you go. And thank you very much for joining us. But uh, everyone's talking about Tiger. Will he break um, um, the 18, uh, uh, I guess it's majors and the, rec- the record by Nicholas? Most people say that's a super long shot. Where do you where do you come down on that? You know, I haven't modeled that, modeled it out, but I do think it's a long shot. He's one of the best golfers in the world right now, um, top ten, but he's not he's not a top five golfer. And so, you know, right now, I mean, he doesn't have that many chances left. He's forty three years old, mm-hmm. um, and you know, the yeah, I'm trying to remember who the oldest. I mean, he's one of the oldest major winners just at age 43. I mean, and Jack, I think and Nicholas Jack was 46. 46. Yeah. He won the Masters back in um, 86. But, you know, he, so I made Tiger 20, for, like for contest, I made him 26 to 1 for the Masters. You know, let's, let's assume he's got a 5% chance in each of um, the next, I don't know, assuming no injuries, which is, but a huge assumption, and one that yeah, that's one in, does not stand. Um, one in five I, chance I, a year—that's not very good. So you're kind of where where uh, where you know five thirty eight puts what? him very very remote. So what? Yeah, yeah, I think it's pretty remote, but it could happen. I mean, it, the of odds of any the odds of any golfer winning in a major in a given year um, is an underdog. Yeah. Tremendously. Even the best, the best golfer in the world is not expected to win a major that year. <laughs> not even close. I mean, one, this is one of our ongoing themes is that the, if you just, I think, we've argued without really much statistical backing, but you have to go at least five deep, maybe more, into the tournament until you get to 50% of the probability. Would you say that's five or is it more? I would say, let's see, I'm adding up the probabilities for the Masters. Five deep, that 43% mm-hmm. is here for me. Um, to get to fifty percent, seventy and seventy. It's higher for the Masters because there is more. The best players seem to distinguish themselves a little bit more at the Masters. There's there's a little less randomness there, right? So, um, you know, something like the British Open or you know a, a regular tour event. Um, you won't have that sort of the, the same. You know, the best players aren't going to be. They aren't all there and all at their game for the as they would be for the Masters. Listen, Rufus, it's been great having you on. I'm, we're, I'm sure you're going to be back on our show. You are always one of the most knowledgeable, not only sports better, but but uh, really statistical analysts of sports out there, and certainly um, respect that. And uh, thanks for, very much for joining us on the show. We'll talk to you again sometime soon. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Um, so we are now into our last uh, few minutes of our show. I'm going to welcome into the studio in a few moments my colleague uh, and friend Dan Loney. Dan Loney is the host of uh, his regular morning show at 10 
a.m. and he's going to follow me this morning, asking me to get in here so early oh for this show. God. Fifteen minutes oh earlier than he is. God. Dan actually has a great background in sports. You want yes. to share with us that background? Yeah. So uh, I worked in minor league baseball as a broadcaster for thirteen years. Traveled. I was you know Bull Durham on the bus on the bus. <laughs> Uh, it was a better bus than what you saw in the movie Bull Durham. Yeah. I ate at a lot of Waffle Houses. I ate at a lot of, you know, when we went to went out to Altoona, a lot of the Sheets drive-in stores. That's Sheets, S-H-E-E-T-Z. Oh, my God. Not, you know, So which, which team was it? Uh, I, was in which Char- I was in Charleston, West Virginia in single A for six years. We were Reds and then Kansas City. And then I was in Trenton for seven years, and we were Red Sox and Yankees. So uh-huh. I got to see both sides of that uh, of that battle. That's amazing. You know, minor league. There's like 350 minor league baseball teams. Is that about right? And uh, many of them are profitable. We have um, they they are. And 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 I heard this conversation done before. The reason why they're profitable is because the teams themselves, there, there is this agreement between the minor league teams and Major League Baseball. So Major League Baseball pays for the salaries. They pay for the health insurance. They pay for a majority of the bats and the balls and, mm-hmm. and all that stuff. The minor league team is responsible for the travel, the hotels, uh, and the uniforms. So the, the minor league teams get a break on, yeah, on this do. deal. Yeah, they do. They do. And there are some, yeah. of course, independent teams, but fewer yes. and fewer. Yes. Of course, the, and independent means you're not affiliated with a, with a baseball. Correct. And it ends up being uh, players that maybe played in minor league baseball, got cut. Right. They still want to play. They hadn't been signed by another major league organization, so they went in and they went to independent ball. So it gives them an opportunity. Yeah. And so, but I think it's great, and we we're, we're actually planning, yes. hopefully, planning a trip out in Lancaster, where this oh, is yeah. the Atlantic League, where they're, they're yeah. talking, they're the they're the the barnstormers, the barnstormers. Barn they're one of the teams that is adopting these new rules. Yes, that, correct. And some of them are crazy. Yeah, moving the mound back. Yes. and uh, so and we we're I think talking about going to see what that's like. I'd love to get Cade Massey to a, a minor league baseball game. Um, Anyway, so that's uh, that's. But that's, so I did baseball for 13 years, and then I've also spent a lot of time broadcasting college sports as well, football and basketball. So wow, got a long, long, long history. So in this just, industry. just to, to get some background uh, in our in our show, whenever we do over unders, which yeah. we're about to do right now, Dan's <laughs> often in the back room just shouting at us, like, "Really? What are you guys crazy? How could you say that the Eagles are going to lose?" <laughs> right? Uh, or, or you know, he's obviously is is uh, loyal to our, our local teams. So in our final segments, let's go to our last over under. It's Warden Moneyball's over under. Okay, Dan. Yes, we're gonna do. We're gonna start with some MLB. Okay. What's on my mind are the performance, the ridiculous performance, starting performance of the Rays and the catastrophic performance. Catastrophic. It's early of the Red Sox. <laughs> so let's start with the second one on our list, which is which Matt has put up. For, Put down the line. He's really good at this, by the way. Shout out to our producer, Matty Datz, who seems to find that 50% mark pretty pretty elegantly. Yeah. He's got 1.5 as the playoff appearances for the Red Sox and the Yankees. So the combined number of playoff appearances for the Red Sox and the Yankees. Last year we had two. That's the top that you're going to get. And... Uh, 1.5 is the line. What do you go? You can start here. And, and, and mind you, to all the listeners, I come at this from... You know, having been in the game, you know, mm-hmm. I don't come at more from the analytics side of it. Right. So I see 1.5 playoff appearances for the Red Sox and Yankees, and I, I would take the over. 
You on would? that. Okay. And, and the reason why is I believe that the Yankees obviously will find their path. Obviously, they have a lot of injuries, but they will move. And I can't believe that the Red Sox are going to be this bad. They're in last place right. in the AL East. And I also don't believe that the Tampa Bay Rays, over 162 games, can be this good. Now, they were good last year. They had a good season, but they weren't good enough to make the playoffs. I still believe I take the over on that. Yep. Well, overs is a good bet. It goes from it's uh, from a statistical view. I'll throw that in. Yeah. You're pushing Pryor. Pryor had the the Red Sox and the Yankees as as the outright favorites in that league. Yeah. And although both of them have played fairly badly through April, we're not done with April. And you're just you're just shrinking back to the Priors, and I yeah. absolutely hardly contend with that. On the other hand, um, I think the Tampa Bay Rays are for real. I I mean not. I love what they've done on on the analytics side. Yes, and remember, only one can win the division. So you're Correct. essentially saying the other has to has to take the wild one of the two wild card spots. Yep. I, I do like the, the the over, but I'm actually going to go with the under. And, and here's where the uniqueness of the wild card comes into play: is that we look at the wild card specifically in the in the scope of the Red Sox and the Yankees. But what you also have to remember is you have two other divisions, and right now in the American League West, you have three teams over 500 and one at 500, which is unique. Unique because mm-hmm. it's normally the other way around, where That's the right. East has all That's the right. winning teams. That's exactly what so you're staring have to, at that and you going have to what, factor in. What's going on with that? I mean, the Mariners are playing ridiculously well, yes. and, and that's a huge surprise. But Texas is over 500. Oakland, which always seemingly plays pretty well. Is at five hundred. Yeah, too. they'll they'll be there in the end. Yeah. I'm not so, but it's. I mean, the real issue is is Chris Sale an 4 horrible pitcher as yeah. we've seen, or is he something better? I yeah. mean, the the fantasy advice has been going out on on Sale that now is the time to buy him cheap um, because he's Chris Sale and and four losses shouldn't mean much. This is a classic what Cade would say overreaction. So yeah. as a psychologist, one of the one of the interesting. You know, field in, it's a modern field is, uh, is the, how people interpret statistical observations, probability observations. And right. there's huge, huge, um, mis, calibration that people have about probabilities and this is what uh you know danny kahneman with his book thinking fast and slow and his uh economic prize in uh in memory of alfred nobel um has gone for this um basically behavioral economics is all centered on how people perceive probabilities and one of the one of the most important ones is overreaction quick quick adjustment to to early information which might have been my red sox yankees pick of going over (laughs) well well you actually well so so let's go on let's do uh let's do one more baseball um two 2.5 2.5 division wins for the combined Indians, Astros, and Dodgers. Division wins for Indians, Astros, and Dodgers. So basically, they're all heavily favored. Yes. So just to back back it up, right now Dodgers are least uh, well about one and uh, about. 80% probability. Indians are about 70%. Astros are even higher. So all three of them are leading. Astros have won a ridiculous number of games and yeah. looking terrific. They all look great. So 2.5 division wins for those three. I, I'm going to again say the over. And, and, the, and the reason why is that when you, again, when you look at the divisions that the Indians and the Dodgers are in, Traditionally, historically, yep. you would say that those two teams have been the best teams in those divisions over the last several yep. years. And so you would automatically, I think, put a little more influence. At, and getting back to something I just said, the unique part may be the American League West, where Houston has gotten off to a great start, but you also have Seattle on a great start. Mm-hmm. Texas is over 500 and, and Oakland. So, you know, when you get all of those teams playing each other, how much of an impact? 
is the success of those other three teams going to have on Houston? I, I think it's a good a good over under. I think they they probably about fifty fifty. Then one of them would lose it. If I would guess it, it would probably be the Indians. Yeah. Um, but I'm also going to go on the over on that. I'd love to hear what my colleagues have to say. Maybe next week they can they can uh, add them to their list. Yeah. All right, let's do the NBA. Uh, we have time for another maybe one uh, more uh, 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 over under. Let's do. Uh, I don't know if you're watching six uh, net, the Nets versus the Sixers. One point five more Nets wins against the Sixers. So will they win two or more going forward or with obviously will they either win or will they win in, or lose in seven that's essentially what the uh, what the over under is if you had asked me this question after the first game when the, say, Net, when the Nets right? I would have said yes absolutely uh, but the way that the Sixers came back in the, in the second half of their game I believe I don't think the Nets will win two more games in this series I just I just don't see it happening you know what I'm going to agree with you on yeah. this one. So we diverge yeah. on the first one. We agree on the second two. I agree. I mean, I, I, I don't. You, I, I talked about this their victory uh, in the earlier part of the show, and, yeah. and I, I set it up by talking about how, how Charles Barkley in the break went on and on about how the Nets have their number, and, yeah, right. And then and then they, and he just just fell apart. Is he yeah. bullshitting? I mean, is that just nonsense? Well, I, I, I yes, one, I believe believe it. It is, uh, and, and two, I would ask you on top of that. Just on the game alone, what's the probability of a team scoring 50 points in any game in a quarter, let alone a playoff game? <laughs> well, exactly. I, I calculated this uh, offhand in the first part of the show, and it's at least one in a thousand. It's probably more like one in 5,000. Yeah, right. Just, it's an incredible performance, and they just looked completely mismatched. Right. So, I, I mean, the Nets are obviously a team on the rise, but they just looked like, as I said earlier, they looked like children. Because when you talk about uh, about playoff basketball, mm-hmm. the, the the style of basketball that is played is a slower, more half court game, hence fewer possessions, hence fewer opportunities to get to fifty points. Exactly. Now this yeah. is uh, so we have a golf one on the list, uh, which is which is <laughs> Ooh, a, a yeah. tricky one. I'm, I'm not sure we have time to unpack it. Eight point five more majors before Tiger wins another one. So in other words, that's about f- two and a half years. Um, will it go two and a half? And he's, does he have to win one? I mean, that's uh, it's he, so he'd have to win one, but it would have to be in a while. Would you say that there's or, or, there, or is he going to win one more quickly? I would take the under on this, and the only reason I would is because of Augusta and uh-huh. because of his success at Augusta. Yeah, Remember, like Augusta, the Masters, is really the only course where you play it year after year after year. The Open and other courses, well, and the British Open, you play other courses. All right, so you're going, you're going he's going to do it. I um, think he's going to win say, Augusta I, I have again. to say he's not, so I'm going to go in the over. Yeah. But that concludes our show. So thank you very much for listening to Wharton Moneyball. I want to thank Matty Datz, our producer, and Daniel Bruno, our sound engineer, our assistant producer, Zach Drapkin in the studio. It's been a great um, two-hour show. The first a couple of recorded interviews, we had Rufus, Dan, and Rick Peterson join us next next week. Enjoy your sports, everyone. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.